Even if you're not a huge classical music fan, you've got to admit there's something special about Handel's Messiah, and in particular, that joyous celebration that is the Hallelujah Chorus. Today, we're going to take a peek backstage to find out where this remarkable composition came from and the message it contains about Christmas. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Hey, Christmas is coming soon, and I I hope you're getting that sense of the Christmas spirit. We've got a special treat for you today. I've got someone in the studio who I think you will really enjoy getting to know, and that is Alita King from the Avondale College Conservatorium, who heads up the music program there at Avondale. How are you, Alita? Well, thank you. Good to be here. Excellent, excellent. So it's the end of the year, you've done graduation, the students are sort of drifting away, you're feeling a sense of Christmas peace and calm starting to steal over your soul now? Yes, I think today it's tiredness after the graduation weekend, but the peace and calm is definitely on its way. (laughs) It's good to hear. Now, you wrote an article for us amidst all the the flurry of, of college of a few years back, actually, but we reprinted it because I loved it. And it was exploring Handel's Messiah, like that, that famous, I guess, series of classical pieces, you know, with the choir and everything that we often hear around Christmas time with, I guess, that most famous of anthems, the Hallelujah Chorus. And you wrote a little bit about the, the background of that, which is great. So, Thanks for doing that. But I wanted to explore some of those themes with you today on on Signs of, of the Times Radio. So, first of all, can you tell us how did Handel's Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus come to be associated with Christmas in the first place? Because it is a bit of a Christmas thing, isn't it? You know, often there are performances of Messiah coming coming up to Christmas time. Correct. It seems to be that sort of tradition in English-speaking countries, and in particular Australia and America. Mm-hmm. However, if you, in England, whilst it is performed around Christmas time in England, it's also associated quite heavily with the Lent season, which is just before Easter and oh, coming up to okay. Easter. Yep. That tends to be the tradition a little bit as well in England, or should I say Britain. Mm-hmm. And that's probably to do with the fact that Handel himself never really... He didn't write it as a Christmas piece to mm-hmm. begin with. And in fact, the premiere of that was in April 1742. Wow. Okay. And so April, you know, around Easter, and he had the second performance uh, in June. So, in fact, that was to do with Easter and then summertime, if you want to think of it like that. Oh, wow. So traditionally, it didn't have that Christmas appeal. But if I was to imagine where that Christmas association came from, I suppose it's probably to do with the fact that Handel, coming from his German roots, he was Lutheran, grew Mm -hmm. up in a a Lutheran family. In fact, his mother was actually the daughter of a Lutheran minister at the time. So there was very much that sense of, well, the Christian sense of charity being Mm -hmm. a big part of who you are and what you do in society. And I think we, at Christmas time, we always associate at Christmas time with that sense of Charity, good works, love, mm-hmm. care for our care for others, yeah, and that, that so in that real, very real sense of helping the poor, the needy, orphans, and widows, 
I think that's that was really the main event for for Handel at the time. Well, and how, how did how is Handel's Messiah associated with the idea of like charity or, or giving? I mean, it, it's not. What, what what do you what do you call that whole suite of songs together? Sorry, I'm I'm, I'm going to be asking you a lot of questions sure. about classical terminology <laughs> today because I don't know a lot of them. So, it, what do you call it? A suite of songs? Is it a musical? I mean, <laughs> it's actually called an oratorio. And okay. to understand oratorio, I'll give you a quick definition of that. An oratorio is sacred. The text, if you like, is sacred. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty much the equivalent of an opera without the costumes and the acting and the drama. Mm -hmm. So there was an important difference there between opera, which was considered secular or profane is how they would call Mm -hmm. it back then, and an oratorio, which became still the dramatic story, but without the costumes and the acting and the Mm. the drama and the overtop. So so similar instruments and orchestra, similar singing style as opera. But, and, and you're telling a story through a series of songs. Yes. And, and that's called an oratorio. Yes. And that's essentially the difference. It, and it's, the, it's, it's an opera without acting. Correct. As, as a, a sacred, a Christian opera without acting. Yes, okay. I suppose. Because the, <laughs> the, the cultural norms of the time were that secular belonged in a, a musical, a theatre, mm-hmm. some sort of secular venue. Mm. And an oratorio belonged in a sacred sort of a venue, okay. perhaps. All right, cool. So now, now that we've got some of that terminology sorted out, sorry, you, you were saying there's a connection somehow between Handel's Messiah oratorio and the idea of charity and, and giving that perhaps has influenced it Correct. becoming a Christmas piece. So how, how does that work? Okay, so Handel actually did write this. The, the premiere of this piece mm-hmm. was actually for a charity to raise money for an orphanage, I believe. That was very much a part of his sense of who he was as mm. a person. Mm. His values. His yeah. values, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it was important to him. And, you know, that became a tradition in England. Mm-hmm. For I think from then, from that first performance in, in Dublin, Ireland, actually, which mm. is another story in itself as to why it was premiered there. Maybe we'll get to that later. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. But it's a, it was from that very first performance, it was for a charity and from then on, that became the tradition that when Handel's Messiah was performed with Handel, he conducted it to the day he died. Mm. It was always performed for a charity to raise money okay. and funds for things like orphanages, hospitals, poor people, mm. you name it. Yeah. Okay. And, and is one reason why it's perhaps particularly you know, beloved in places like Australia and America and Britain that it was originally written in English? It was, yes. Handel was German, but he had come across to England as court composer. I think it was King George. Well, he was actually Prince George, Mm -hmm. the Elector of Hanover. But when he came across to England to become the first King George in England and Ireland, I think at the time, Handel came over as his court composer. Right. Okay. So it, everything was written in English okay. from that point forward. So, so whereas a, a lot of sort of classical sacred music that we might think of, I guess well, a lot of Bach's music was sort of sacred, German. wasn't it? Yeah. Always written in yes, German correct. and then translated into English later, which uh, there's always a little bit of cultural disconnect, isn't there, when, when that happens. But if you write in English straight away, then English speakers are going to resonate perhaps that little bit more with it. Yes. And I'm sure that Handel was multilingual and very fluent in both German and English, mm-hmm. and you can hear that in the the music, the idioms and the way he expresses things are very English. It's a, and the way he orchestrates it with the mu- the music and the instruments, it, he really understood the language well. 
Mm, wow. Okay. This is this is re- really fascinating. So, you've told us a little bit who Handel was, but I understand that Messiah, and perhaps you've given us a hint already, that Messiah was actually quite controversial for its time. Like this form of music, the oratorio, had this been around before Handel's time, or did he was he the first one to essentially, hey, let's take opera and make it religious? It's an interesting situation that he finds himself in. So we're, we're talking about him coming from a Protestant Lutheran tradition mm-hmm. for a start. So there's already that sense of Protestant being different to Catholic. Mm-hmm. And ironically, at the time in London, would you believe it, for some reason, the Catholic Church had put a sanction on operas and particularly Handel's. Some of Handel's operas had oh. been they were told not to be performed. He was not allowed to perform them. I don't. I, I don't know exact the details there. But the, the, are these like his mainstream op- some operas of, that didn't have any religious content at correct, all? Correct. Yes. Ah. I think there was there was a, there was definitely tension between. Mm. And this is a political and a. Yeah, you can look. There's a lot of historical yep. significance there. But certainly there was tension between operas and this the idea of oratorio. Oratorios came out of opera, but it was in a, in a way a way for him to answer his public, what they were asking for. Hmm. So we have the Catholic Church putting sanctions on on how opera or what what should be performed hmm. in an opera and, sense. And, and is that because they saw opera as being morally decadent? Possibly. I'd say that would be right. one of the big reasons. Because certainly, I mean, I, I'm not hardly into opera at all, but the, occasionally when I've seen a sort of a special on ABC TV or something and they've got the the subtitles, you know, they're singing away in Italian or whatever, but the subtitles are there and you start to follow the story and like, oh my goodness, this is quite yes. tawdry stuff. <laughs> so I can sort of understand yes. why, you know, established authorities and church authorities in particular might have been a little exactly. shocked by um, some of the, I guess, the sexual immorality and some of the maybe pagan sort of themes from, you know, Greco-Roman past or whatever, they're all sort of mixing together in in these operas. Yes, I think that's probably a big part of it. And Handel saw the writing on the wall and he was he was smart. Mm. He could see the dwindling sale or, t- or ticket price or people. His audience mm. was dwindling. And he recognized that he needed to change a few things there in terms of how he did this model of opera. Mm. Started to adapt biblical stories in an operatic way. Mm-hmm. Well, they were still called oratorio without the costumes and the acting. Mm-hmm. That was a very important distinction. And eventually that, that's what led him to then explore Messiah. Handel ha- took stories, juicy stories like Solomon and Samson, and set them to, to music. Mm-hmm. And so then the public liked that idea. It was biblical. Yep. It's still a story being set to music, but it's biblical. However, when it got to Messiah, that seemed to be a whole nother level of sacred mm-hmm. that, that people felt he'd really pushed the boundaries mm-hmm. Reason being was not so much the story and the text. It was all biblical text Mm -hmm. from Charles Jennings. So there was no story about it other than what was specifically out of the Bible. The whole thing Mm. is just quotes from the Bible. So so it's not like today we see the Disneyfication of Bible stories. No, not at all. It was word for word from the King James Version of the Bible. Yes, it was. So there was nothing wrong with that integrity. The problem they had was actually the fact that Handel's audience that was going to listen to the Messiah didn't always attend church. So we're talking about a public that did Mm. and did not attend church. So Handel decided to give his first 
premiere in a music theatre, a music hall, mm. which was absolutely out there. Rather than a cathedral of, exactly. or something. And I think they were challenged by that very much. How could sacred music that is preserved for a church context be suddenly performed? And what's more, to make it even worse, musicians, singers and vocalists and instrumentalists who weren't actually believing the Christian message, perhaps, or, mm. you know, they didn't not, attend Not necessarily church. weekly yes. church yes. attenders. Yeah. That was scandalous. Wow. And it's interesting you say that Handel came from Germany in the first place, had a Lutheran background, because I think a couple of hundred years before that, Martin Luther had famously or infamously asked the question, why should the devil have all the good tunes? Exactly. And Martin Luther himself like took popular sort of barroom sort of shanties of the day and put Christian lyrics to them. Exactly. And, t- and today, you know, you look through a Christian hymn book and you'll see songs by Martin Luther. And you think, wow, what a grand, majestic hymn, you know. And it turns out that he was actually adapting it, it a, was a popular tune. It was a popular tune. song at yeah. the time. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Look, Handel, I think that's the way he'd been brought up. Mm. And I think also Handel was a larger-than-life figure. If you read in the historical context there, it talks about him being quite big and tall and just a huge personality, charismatic mm. to the extreme. So l- larger sanguine. than life in, yes. in, all, in yes. all senses of the, the expression. So he was ready to embrace anything that was going to reach his audiences. Mm. And mm. he wasn't afraid of pushing the boundaries mm. as most wonderful artists are. Mm. Okay. So it's interesting that you, um, I guess you're painting a picture that in some ways Handel's choice of writing Messiah was a, a marketing exercise or, you know, like yes. you say that the Solomon it was an experiment. And, and, and the Samson and all this sort of stuff. Hmm. Society's getting quite conservative and the church is having a, you know, a strong hold on people and banning my operas. I need to go more biblical. But then in your article, you point out that Handel was actually quite affected like spiritually and emotionally by his experience of actually like writing and composing Messiah. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yes, there's a, a famous quote that Handel himself saying, it was as if I saw all of heaven opening up in front of me mm. in that moment as he was writing the Messiah. And I think he famously wrote it in about 21 days, which is about, well, three weeks, isn't it? Wow. So it was a real intense artistic process. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I'm convinced that that he was having a spiritual experience in mm. those three weeks that there's a another lovely quote where I think a, a priest or a, maybe an Anglican priest of some sort might have been having a go at him about what he's doing with the text that he's using. Mm-hmm. And he famously says something along the lines of, I'm quite fine and I can work it out for myself. I know my Bible well and I will make my own decisions. Thank you very much. Mm. And you can just imagine that he would have said something like that. So he was very secure in what he believed Mm. coming from a Lutheran culture and a family tradition there. And I think that that gave him the confidence. And when Charles Jennings sent this text to him, I think he immediately saw, he must have seen mm. the absolute uh, gold in mm. in the story that Jennings had put together. Mm. Okay. So what? So can you tell us like what what were the different, because um, you said it came straight from the, like the Bible. So that the words, that, is the official word libretto? I think yes, you, you used that word in your article, yes. libretto. It's yes, very Italian. Italian. So, so that just means 
the lyrics. Yes. So that gives a clue also to its operatic connections there. Yeah, because yeah. libretto is always what you call the words for the, the opera. For an opera. Okay. Correct. So so what, what were the words? What were the selected passages from the Bible that Handel used to compose the, the Messiah so songs? So Charles Jennings wanted to tell the whole story from biblical text, as we said before. Mm. There are three general parts. The first part is the prophecy or the foretelling of the Messiah's Mm -hmm. birth. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. And then you go into the birth and then you have the life of Jesus and then the death and the resurrection. Mm. So the Messiah oratorio is actually divided into roughly three parts that cover that journey. Mm. But interesting enough, and I think I remember reading this in your article, you said that none of the Bible texts that were selected were actually the words of Jesus? Yes, that's a really interesting point yeah. because, again... Because that seems strange to tell, here's a, a whole oratorio all about Christ and the words of Christ don't appear within it. It's a little strange. It does feel strange in our society, but again, you have to go back to the context of the society he was living in. Remember, he's already mm. in trouble by the authorities because he's pushed the envelope too far as, as far as they're concerned in terms of performing this thing, mm. even performing a piece by Jesus outside of the church mm. in mm. that sacred environment. But what he doesn't do is use Jesus' words directly for that very reason, because there's still a a sacredness about the death of Christ Mm. and Jesus himself. And I suppose that comes from a Jewish idea as well, where they they say the name of Jesus very reverently and very carefully, or even not at all. I was thinking about that. Yeah, I think the the name of of God in the the Hebrew scriptures is not even spelled out fully. And when you're reading it, you don't say the word, you say the word, the Lord instead. And I guess I'm thinking similarly with Muslims. Yes. They are very careful like with their visual arts. They don't want to represent the prophets or, you know, including Muhammad or Jesus or anyone. They don't want a picture of, of their face. There's that sort of reverence to, you know, not say the name, not show the face, but just have that little bit of distance, a little bit of respectful, reverent distance. And that was what was going That's on. That's exactly right. So yeah. Handel tell the story up until the time of the death. And because that was the most sacred part of the story, mm-hmm. He then used prophecy from the Old Testament to tell it in a little bit removed, but not first person. It wasn't Jesus at that moment. So Mm. you don't hear any, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Or, you know, Mm -hmm. it is finished. You don't hear any Mm. of that. But you actually hear the prophecies that foretell what was going to happen in that moment. Mm. So passages from Psalms and Isaiah that talk about the suffering at that point. Okay. Well, some of our listeners, Alita, won't necessarily be, you know, familiar with the Bible or or know some of those those verses. Can you just give us a a, a couple of lines from Handel's Messiah there? Like what some of the... Those lyrics are that that are taken from those passages? Yes. So Psalm 22 is the psalm that talks about the death of Christ, basically. Mm. It's the passage. And it's actually the passage. But it's foretelling it because it's it's written like thousands or hundreds of years before. Yeah. David, it's David's psalm, mm-hmm. and da- King David is t- talking about, well, foretelling the story of this this moment. Mm. Jesus must have grown up knowing that that psalm was about him, mm-hmm. so that when that moment came, I would imagine reciting bits from that passage helped him to mm-hmm. get through that mm-hmm. moment. And in fact, I think he quoted from it on the cross. Yes, he did. Yeah. There were some of it, I think, where they, they cast lots for my clothes. Mm-hmm. That's in that bit there. They have pierced my hands yes, and feet. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Those, those moments. It's so, all in Psalm yeah. 22, which is weird because I hadn't even really invented crucifixion at the time. Correct. David must have, I can imagine David must have seen this somehow in vision or a dream or, or mm. he, just, he just knew. And also, 
I mean, to draw parallels, David was suffering quite greatly at the time oh, that's too right. for his own issues. And so there was a parallel there. Yeah, it had immediate relevance. Yeah. Wow, that's that's cool. And there's stuff from Isaiah there. I mean, Isaiah 53 is yes. a famous sort of prophecy about what the Messiah would be like and yes. how the, the Messiah would suffer for our sins. And did Handel draw on Isaiah 53? Absolutely. And in fact, the, the opening, well, once you get past the opening overture, mm-hmm. the very next Which piece, is what we call the intro now. Yeah. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so once we get past the intro, yep. the very next piece is a very famous tenor solo called Comfort Ye. Mm-hmm. And it's straight out of Isaiah, out of those passages. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a really beautiful moment where Handel's saying, it's okay, God's got this. Mm. And you can be calm about this. Uh, because I know, I know the beginning from the end, and you just have to stay calm and trust me. Wow. It's a really beautiful moment in the passage. No, that, that is excellent. Is that, because I know you've bought some musical selections yes. along from, from Messiah today. Have you got some yes. of that from Comfort, Comfort Ye? Why don't we listen to that, a little bit of that right now? So that's that is really sort of beautiful and reflective, is it? Isn't it, Alita? What 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 is it that's special about that piece of music for you? I think if you hear it in the context of the overture, which you've well, the audience will have just heard that, mm. and the overture to an opera or an oratorio is traditionally quite exciting mm-hmm. and sometimes fast and furious. It's, it's fast and furious. I was going to say, it sounds like an action movie where you always start like, <laughs> bam, you know, straight into the action and the, yes. the first, um, it's to grab the attention. But this is different. Yes. So an oratorio, yes. The, so the overture starts stately and then it usually jumps into something quite fast and exciting. Yeah. And you've just sort of, and it sort of roused the audience into a state of, wow, expectation. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you're hit with this lovely, reflective, quiet, a tenor aria that just takes you into another world. And it's like Handel's using music to affect, affect, in mm. that truest sense of the word, his audience to get their hearts and themselves prepared mm. for the message that he's about wow. to Wow, which is something that quite share. often happens in church, for Absolutely. example. Absolutely. say, okay, yeah. now it's time just to think, just to relax, right. just to take it down a couple of notches. Yes. And, this, yeah. this piece, I, I'm convinced, was intended to go straight to the heart Mm-hmm. And to go straight to the mind and connect the soul in mm-hmm. that way, because I guess in in the same way that you know as I originally wrote that, I guess you know God speaking through him saying, "Hey, look, you know you people, mm. you Jewish people who are going through so many hard times, you know expecting you know tough times about to come, 
I want to give you a message of comfort. And, and that is something that I guess everyone who's going through a tough time can relate to. Everyone who hears those words, wow, is this God saying, I'm here to offer you comfort? It's, it's a beautiful thing. And it would grab you by the heartstrings. Yes, absolutely. Wow. No, that's, that's good. So what, what else is special uh, about Messiah? Well, we can't finish this conversation probably without talking about the Hallelujah Chorus. Well, absolutely not. <laughs> so that is a bit special. Yeah, yeah. I do have two recordings there, quite different recordings, yeah. I must say. And this might be part of the, shall we say, a sense of why this piece is timeless and long, the longevity is there. It's classic. It's mm. just part of everyone's consciousness in this society still. Even yeah. though it might be a piece that people listen to who are not necessarily Christian or... Religious de- at all. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But they can still respect the devotion that mm-hmm. this imparts and the, the pathos and the sense of And grandeur. the celebration, yes, this song. Absolutely. I, I think. Yeah. So that's, that's one of its... I think this Hallelujah Chorus is famous for lots of reasons. There's, always, there's also the story that King George himself stood up during the Hallelujah Chorus, and that's that little tradition that if you go to a performance today, there is the tradition that sometimes the audience does stand during this. Mm. That's very grand it's, in and of it, itself. In some ways, it's it's the national anthem of yes. Christianity, isn't it? <laughs> in a way, yes. I thought you could think of it like that, yes. So, But I think also the story is timeless. It has existed and kept existing as part of our traditions because like God and Jesus, the story is timeless and the mm. music is timeless. It really is. Mm. So I was thinking we might listen to the traditional let's, Hallelujah Chorus yeah, first and then something that. a bit special later. Let's do that. That is amazing, isn't it? Just, I mean, apart from it being, you know, so powerful, you know, that power that's there, you know, the timpani and the trumpets and all that sort of stuff, there's also this intricate sort of overlaying of different parts of the choir are sort of like overlapping one another and it's just like, yes. yeah, incredible. So Handel as a composer, and this is one of the reasons why it's timeless, because Handel's timeless as well. Like Mm. all great artists that have stood the test of time, 
It's musically very complex, mm. but Handel is such a master that he can present such a musically complex thing in such a simplistic and beautiful way. It's catchy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it, it's, he just, he gets it. He mm. gets music and that like all great artists and masters, they know their craft. Wow. So in the oratorio, where, like, at what point in the story does the Hallelujah Chorus come? Like what's, what's happening at that point? People often think that the Hallelujah Chorus, well, you can imagine that it, it might be so grand that it might be the, the last piece, the yeah, finale. Yeah, the, the climax. The, but it's not, yeah. actually. It, it happens right at the end of the second part. Uh. Now, possibly that was because they were ready for a, a break mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the performance. Oh, and, yes. And, you know, it, it, it was just, a grand just before break. the intermission. Just before the intermission, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. But also in the story as well, it's an interesting thing. It happens just after... Well, around the time of the death, we haven't quite yet heard about the resurrection, but I think the tenor aria just before talks about he that dwelleth in heaven shall laugh them to scorn. He shall break them with a rod of iron. There, mm. There's quite a sense of victory in that. Mm-hmm. If you think of that as a, even a warrior-like thing to do, mm. breaks them with a rod of iron. But so so in the, in the story about two-thirds of the way through, this is when Jesus actually dies on the cross, essentially. And this comes pretty much after that, like before the resurrection. Yes. That is, that just blows me away. That really does blow me away because you'd think that Jesus dying on the cross and the disciples being scattered, you know, like sheep without a shepherd and all this sort mm. of stuff, that it, this would be the, you know, the, the time when the French horns start wailing and you and you have a really sad sort of, you know, Viking dying on the stage sort of op- opera moment. And there was definitely a bit of that in there around this time. But I suppose this is just the victory chant that's being anticipated mm. because everyone knows the story. Yeah. And maybe it's a way, maybe it's intended to lift them them into mm. that remind remember remember this is already victorious yeah. there's something victorious yes. built into what the externally story. through yeah. human eyes looks like a tragedy looks like a yeah. total defeat but, but we know the outcome there's and it's, something yeah. deeper going on and maybe wow. it was a, it was a connection with the audience in that way we all know it's going to end well mm-hmm. and let's remind ourselves at this point yep yep wow Okay. Um, you said you had an, another version of the I Hallelujah do. Chorus as well. Yes. And as I was thinking about what to play you this morning, I was also thinking about how we've talked about Messiah being, well, Handel, pushing the envelope a little bit, pushing mm-hmm. the boundaries and being radical or unexpected. This is my nod to radical or unexpected this morning. <laughs> this is actually a black American gospel version of Solf, uh, from from the the album Soulful Celebration, which mm-hmm. is actually their version of Handel's Messiah. It's, it's sort of late 80s, early 90s. Early 90s, yep. Yeah, and it has that sort of, hey man, Casio keyboards are yeah. so cool. You can hear the electronic stuff, the, yeah. but, but the singing is still first class and yeah. it was just fabulous. So I hope you enjoy this. Wow, let's check it out.
Wow, that is a lot of fun, isn't it? You get a real That's sense cool. of celebration there. Yes, you do. I, I just love this reinterpretation, this reinvention, this reimagining of it. Yeah, yeah. Great fun. Wow. Well, that's awesome. Hey, thank you so much, uh, Alita King, for just leading us through some of the, the basics and the story behind uh, Handel's Messiah, that, you know, which has become a, a Christmas classic and certainly a, a time of celebration. Um, I wish more Carols by Candlelight um, events included the Hallelujah Chorus. Wouldn't this that one great? in particular? Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, this arrangement in particular, yeah. No, thank I, you. It's been, it's been great to be here and to talk about this. Of course, you can hopefully tell that I'm really passionate about this sort of thing. So, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Good on you. Have a great Christmas. Thank you. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast. 